From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The latest stimulus package didn't include a hike in the minimum wage, but one is long overdue, says U.S. Senator John Hickenlooper. We haven't had an increase in the minimum wage for 10 years. That's outrageous. It's just ridiculous. And it's part of why we've got so much homelessness. It's part of why there's social unrest at every level. Plus, the Senator on Immigration, Infrastructure, and the future of the filibuster. Then, is it possible we get so much snow that roofs collapse? It happened in 2003, but a building code expert says roofs are more resilient than you might think. You know, if we get a big storm, it's a foot or two. I'm not too concerned. We start getting three feet. Well, then you might see roofs start to bow. And later, remembering a radio legend we were lucky enough to call a colleague. I'm Carol from Highlands Ranch. I'm an Evergreen member. Today is so stressful, and when I tune into CPR, either the news or the classical music, I just feel my soul renewed. You do offer a healing that you just don't realize the the depth of, and I thank you for that. Thank you for your continued essential support for CPR. This doesn't happen without you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. By May 1st, President Biden wants Colorado and every other state to make all adults eligible for a COVID vaccine. And he has set July 4th, Independence Day, as the goal for Americans to celebrate again together in person. Those are some highlights of Biden's first primetime presidential address Thursday. It coincided with the anniversary of the World Health Organization declaring a global pandemic. Look, we know what we need to do to beat this virus. Tell the truth. Follow the scientists and the science. Work together. Put trust and faith in our government to fulfill its most important function, which is protecting the American people. No function more important. We need to remember the government isn't some foreign force in a distant capital. No, it's us, all of us, we the people. More than half a million Americans have died so far from the virus, including more than 6,000 Coloradans. The president also announced the Help Is Here tour to promote the $1.9 trillion pandemic relief bill passed by Congress and signed into law Thursday afternoon. In the coming weeks and months, I'll be traveling along with the First Lady, the Vice President, the Second Gentleman, members of my cabinet, to speak directly to you, to tell you the truth about how the American Rescue Plan meets the moment. And if it fails at any pace, I will acknowledge that it failed, but it will not. About how after long, dark years, one whole year, there is hope and light of better days ahead. If we all do our part, This country will be vaccinated soon. Our economy will be on the mend. Our kids will be back in school. And we'll have proven once again that this country can do anything, hard things, big things, important things. Over a year ago, no one could have imagined what we were about to go through. But now, we're coming through it. And it's a shared experience that binds us together as a nation. 
We are bound together by the loss and the pain of the days that have gone by. We're also bound together by the hope and the possibilities of the days in front of us. My fervent prayer for our country is that after all we've been through, we'll come together as one people, one nation, one America. As part of that Help is Here tour, Vice President Harris will be in Colorado next week. Well, just after the stimulus package passed, I spoke with U.S. Senator from Colorado, Democrat John Hickenlooper. Senator, thanks for being with us. Of course. There's an argument that the economy is already recovering and that this stimulus package is too generous. What are your thoughts? Well, that's something I disagree with. You know, this is a a bill that's designed to make sure we get COVID relief, both vaccines and the resources to make sure the the vaccines are distributed so we can get through this pandemic, but also designed to make sure we kickstart the economy. Uh, And I think that's a big part of what we're going to be measured against, you know, as this bill gets rolled out. Somebody wiser than myself pointed out that if you're, you know, if you're buying a new pair of shoes and, and you get shoes that aren't big enough, that are too small, you're, you're stuck. You're not, you're not going to do much walking. Whereas if they're a little big, you know, you can go forward. And I think that's the, the magic here is that we've got to make sure that this economy has a strong restart, unlike what happened in 2010 uh, and 2011, where they kept cutting away at, this, at the stimulus to the point where it did not have the, the necessary effect. What does the package lack that you would have liked to have seen? I would have wanted, uh, of course, it's a little more support for restaurants. There's uh, $25 billion in here for restaurants. I think that's important. You know, there, there are little nooks and crannies, whereas I've gone around the state, uh, like catering companies, and that industry is on its back. And that the, the money for live music stage relief, there's $1.25 billion of additional resources in this bill for them, but there's nothing for catering. So I think that's one of those places where You know, it doesn't have to be a huge amount of money, but a few billion dollars would have made a huge difference to an industry that's been all but wiped out, not because of their own problems. I mean, it's just the pandemic hit them and knocked them on their back. The Senate took out President Biden's proposed $15 minimum wage, which would have been phased in. Do you support an increase? And if so, would you like to see it added to the next economic package, assuming there is one? Well, I think it's going to have to be negotiated. Uh, I do support a $15 minimum wage, again, rolled out at, at a different rate. But I think that we're going to have to negotiate almost certainly and try and get Republican support. And I'm ever the optimist. I think we will be able to get that support. But you know, we haven't had an increase in the minimum wage for 10 years. I mean, that's outrageous. It's just ridiculous. And it's part of why we've got so much homelessness. It's part of why there's social unrest at every level. Once again, you freeze that minimum wage and the people at the top are making a fortune and the people working in many cases, 50 and 60 hours a week can barely make rent. Are you seeing Republicans at all budge on this issue or seem open to discussion when it comes to the minimum wage? I think there are a number of Republicans that are open to discussion. We'll see how far the discussion goes. And, but I think that some of the moderate Republicans, uh, Susan Collins, for example, uh, is open to talking about this. And, you know, to a certain extent, if you do the minimum wage properly, what it does is it expands the number of consumers that you have in 
in all kinds of industries, uh, not just you know going to restaurants and buying clothes, but purchasing automobiles or you know TV sets. The purchasing power is going to ripple through the whole economy, and I think that's one of the things that sometimes the the business community doesn't recognize. And not to say that we don't have to make sure that we roll it out and, and stage it carefully. I want to point out that the Congressional Budget Office has said that raising the minimum wage could cost 1.4 million jobs. Is that a trade-off then that you are comfortable with? Uh, I think that, A, I don't understand that. So I've requested and I will get the breakdown of where that came from. I find that hard to understand how so many jobs are going are, are to disappear. Uh, you know, trust but verify. All right. Uh, you talked about negotiating with Republicans. W- one way to sort of do an end run around the GOP is to eliminate the filibuster. And I'll just say that the Democrats' margin in the Senate is so thin that this stimulus had to go through a complicated process called reconciliation. And that is because of filibuster rules, which basically requires 60 votes to get anything passed. Is it time to get rid of the filibuster in your mind, Senator Hickenlooper? Well, it's frustrating, and I understand the level of frustration, but the filibuster is in place to, to protect a minority. And certainly, if you look back in the last 20 years, it's been a pendulum. Democrats go from the majority to the minority, and that protection goes both ways. And let's see how we do with the infrastructure bill. That's the next big project that's going to be on, on the docket. And let's hope Republicans will be you know, more willing to collaborate and work together with Democrats so that we can show that the filibuster, you know, that you can get 60 votes, that not everything is going to end up with a filibuster. I think what I Uh, hear you saying is Republicans shape up or ship out uh, or, you know, we'll we'll look at it that way. We'll get rid of (laughs) we'll get rid of the filibuster if you don't collaborate. Is that what I hear you saying? Well, there are a number of different tools in the toolbox. Uh, And I think if after several months, we continue not to make any progress, I mean, there's just too many issues facing this country that have a a real sense of urgency. I mean, infrastructure is a big one. Uh, It's part of the, the planned economic recovery, but climate change is another one. I mean, we cannot just sit here on our hands and do nothing. We've got to begin moving aggressively and a large percentage of the business community recognizes that and is willing to to begin making the necessary changes and in some cases some sacrifices to move strongly in the direction of addressing climate change. There is talk of keeping the filibuster intact, but requiring the senator who calls it to actually stand there and talk until it's resolved, like no food, no breaks. I guess think of, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Uh, But I want to get quite precise with you. Are you, Senator Hickenlooper, willing to get rid of the filibuster if you don't see uh, genuine compromise among Republicans? So, and you know this, Ryan, I'm not, I don't jump into hypotheticals. There's just too many variations involved. And I I am being honest and direct with you that, that I want to give it a few months. I want to work at finding common ground and uh, working towards 60 votes. And if that doesn't work, then we'll have to certainly, a, that's what they call a talking filibuster. And that's certainly one of the, the options that's out there. And you still have a filibuster, but it's a very different creature. 
Only months into your term, you've already cast a vote that's been really controversial in Colorado. In February, you were one of eight Democrats who voted for an amendment to prevent people in the country illegally from getting stimulus checks. This was essentially a symbolic amendment, but it set off a lot of criticism from immigration advocates. Will you explain your thinking? I think the key here is uh, that that the way that bill was, the language was so convoluted that it really distorted, right? Actually, I guess you could say it distorted my entire lifetime of working on this issue. So, you know, when I was mayor, we were one of the first cities in America to set up an office of immigrant affairs. While I was governor, we passed legislation to make sure that people without documentation could get a driver's license, that uh, the dreamers could get in-state tuition. You know, I've been working from the very beginning. My, My North Star has been consistently and without variation trying to get comprehensive immigration reform. You know, you secure the border, but you also make sure that you have a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million or 12 million people that are that are here without documentation right now. This vote then, uh, you say, is in contrast to your record. Were you confused then by the vote or? No, I, what I'm emphasizing here is that a, a narrow vote with all kinds of uh, tricky language is often going to distort what your history shows and what your vision for the future is. And I think I want to make sure that I do everything I can, that we get to a comprehensive reform bill around immigration and that we make sure that we do have a pathway to citizenship. I mean, we've been, you tell me, Ryan, we've been kicking the the can down the road for over 20 years, longer than I've been in public service. Back when I was still, you know, running restaurants and, and washing pint glasses, we're having the same discussions. My sense is that this might be the moment to try and and find a way that we can bring, you know, again, you're going to need to find 10 Republicans to pass something in this Senate. I just want to ask you briefly about the president's pick for Interior Secretary Deb Holland. Is she the right choice? You know, we had a, a private meeting. It was on Zoom, but private meeting. But we also had a, I was allowed to, you know, ask her questions in her confirmation hearing. and. I like her. You know, she's a big supporter of outdoor recreation. When I asked her about the BLM headquarters being in Grand Junction, you know, to have the BLM, which has all the land that they control, or almost all the land, is west of the Mississippi. Uh, and I think it's a very powerful statement that they have their headquarters or a significant office out here in the West. They already have many of the jobs are out here. But as we try to redefine what public lands can be, and we work more closely with the outdoor recreation community, you begin to see that if we redid this properly, it could really, you know, get people excited about public lands in a a larger, more expansive way. And I think that serves her purpose. Uh, I think it serves the purpose of the BLM. I think it serves the purpose of Colorado, for sure. So she agreed to come out. We're going to go take a trip out to Grand Junction. And we've got all the local folks out on the West Slope, I think we'll have a good turnout and we'll, we'll give her the full court press. Will she have your support despite some criticism from the oil and gas industry that she uh, is too big a fan of regulations before we go? Yeah, I think she's going to have my support. She, Like any of these nominations, she's in a difficult position. Uh, she's got her own beliefs. She's also got the president's agenda, which she has to support most of what she's been not all, but most of what she's been criticized for have been positions of the president. Uh, And when we give her a chance, I have every expectation that she's going to be a successful secretary of the interior. 
And she has repeatedly said that she recognizes that we've got, you know, a, a larger energy mix uh, and that she's got to be the secretary of the interior for everybody. Senator, thank you. You bet. Democratic U.S. Senator from Colorado, John Hickenlooper. U.S. Senator John Hickenlooper said he wished the latest stimulus package had catered to caterers, which is why we reached out to Cindy Reyes of Pueblo. She has owned sinfully delicious catering for three decades. Right when this pandemic hit, I felt like I was in the prime of my business. It was booming. Um, I was very successful. I was doing great. And then everything happened and went down to almost zero dollars. For years, Reyes and her daughter rented kitchen space at the Fraternal Order of Eagles. Then last March, events they were hired for were canceled. And as you heard, business dried up. Right away, I was worried. Um, I, I didn't think it would last a year. And I didn't think I could make it a year without making any money. But we made it. Um, it was tough. It was really a tough year. And I, I think that it's been tough for a lot of businesses in Pueblo everywhere. The smaller businesses, a lot of them aren't coming back. So how did she survive? Well, Reyes changed her business model. She started cooking for curbside pickup. And around Christmas time, she filled hundreds of orders for tamales. My way of letting people know that I was open is by uh, Facebook. I would post a special every day on Facebook. And there were days we only made $40, you know, and there we are for hours. And it was like, gosh, is this worth it? Should we just close up? Early on, Reyes did get help from the Paycheck Protection Program, but for the most part, she has relied on her community. The Greater Pueblo Chamber and Latino Chamber were very supportive of small businesses in Pueblo. And so they would, I think, they would order for me weekly just to help make sure that we were making it. Other small businesses as well. They just all offered and said, please let us know what we can do to help you. Um, We're here to help you make it through this rough time. And I said, you know, really, I just need you guys to order food. I need the support. And they all came across. And now, a year into the pandemic, Reyes is starting to see business pick back up. I actually booked, I think I have six events for the rest of this month, which is amazing. Um, I booked a couple weddings. I actually booked three weddings. So, yes, it's going to get better and we will be fine. We're going to make it through all this. Cindy Reyes, owner of Sinfully Delicious Catering in Pueblo. That's C-I-N, fully, sinfully for Cindy. And thanks to producers Michelle P. Fulcher and Carla Jimenez for those pandemic stimulus stories. In the San Luis Valley, leadership at the local public health department crumbled last spring just in time for the pandemic. A grassroots group formed to fill the gap and to support people in the valley who've gotten sick with COVID-19. KRCC's Elena Rivero reports. Lucia Miranda knows the exact date, October 27th. The Rio Grande Public Health Department called to tell her she was positive for COVID-19. To be honest, when they told me you're positive, I cried. I was so afraid. 
I was like, what's next? Am I going to survive? What's going to happen? I had a lot of questions, but I couldn't ask them because it was just like, okay, you're positive. See you. Bye. No one else in her house had it. So she quarantined in a room for two weeks. That was the hard part, being away from everyone, Um, not being able, not even to talk to my kids. I have a 10-year-old. She would put letters under my door. We would do FaceTimes, and she would count the days. But she still had questions. What was okay to take for a headache? When should I go to the ER? That's when she got another call from a local group called Los Promotores del Valle de San Luis. They sent her daily texts to check in. They dropped off boxes of food and answered all her questions. I don't know what I would have done without them. Some days I would be having like a really bad day during COVID and they were there. They were always there to support me emotionally. Los Promotores formed in May after coronavirus outbreaks at a mushroom farm in Alamosa and potato warehouses in Center. Lisa Lucero was already working on outreach to farm workers and their families and realized there was a lack of information about how the virus spread and what people needed to do if they tested positive. A few weeks prior, the director of public health for Sawatch County stepped down and the director of Rio Grande Public Health was let go from her position. So during this outbreak, we didn't have any uh, public health directors in place, so that made it a little bit tougher. Lucero quickly helped connect organizers from around the region, like Luis Murillo. He's a middle school principal and center who already had a parent engagement group to draw on. Within that group, we have a saying, si no nosotros quien, si no ahora cuando, if not us who, if not now when. And they said, we're with you. And we didn't really know what that meant. Uh, Back then, it was really scary, uh, a lot more than now I feel. The group put out videos on Facebook and Spanish about coronavirus, knocked on doors passing out information, and provided food and masks, gloves, and hand sanitizer. From September to December of last year, they reached around 2,000 people. And once Lucia Miranda recovered from COVID-19, she also started to volunteer, packing food boxes for families. She says it feels good to support people who are recovering like she was. It's nice knowing that people cares for you out there, that they worry what's going on, that that they're there all the time when needed. After the group formed in the San Luis Valley, a statewide advocacy organization that focuses on food system workers helped facilitate the creation and collaboration of more than 25 regional networks now following the same model. That organization received more than $860,000 in CARES Act grant funding to support the network. For Lucero, This work has helped her feel connected in a time of isolation. It just made me more aware of how rural communities work together, and and there's no county lines. Um, Whether we're from Alamosa or Rio Grande County, we all work together for the common good. Murillo says the network of support will continue to step in to make sure people in the Valley have what they need. It was a dream that I've had uh, to just connect uh, the Valley, not necessarily promotores, but just connect Latinos helping Latinos, familia, helping familia. So I'm, I'm glad it's coming to fruition. Murillo and Lucero with Los Promotores say the group is working on securing funding for this year and collaborating with public health departments like the one in Sawatch County to host vaccine clinics down the line. I'm Elena Rivera, KRCC News. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with just how much snow your roof can handle. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thank you. 
The coronavirus vaccine is rolling out across Colorado. Perhaps you're wondering if it's your turn, and if not, when will that be? And where can you get your shot? I'm health reporter John Daly from the CPR Newsroom. CPR News has all the information you need. Our guide to COVID vaccines in Colorado is always updated, and you'll find it at CPR.org. Click on COVID-19. While you're there, you can also read or listen to CPR's coverage of the pandemic. Again, at CPR.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The governor is activating the National Guard today for the winter storm in case search and rescue is necessary. The forecast is in feet, not just inches. All this naturally makes a person look up at the ceiling and wonder, can my roof handle the weight of all that snow? Building code expert Steve Thomas of Parker joins us. He's author of multiple books, including Building Code Basics. Might we call you a code nerd, Steve? Uh, That or code geek. I kind of go by the code geek. All right. I'm very curious what codes say about the weight-bearing ability of roofs. So the code says that we have to design the roof structure to support what we call a snow load. And in Denver, in Denver area, it's generally 30 pounds per square foot of snow. That's a lot of snow. The storm we had in, was it 2003, I think it was, the last time this happened, was about 30 inches of snow. And it was pretty darn close to that 30 pounds per square foot. And we did have some building failures across the metro area and those kind of things. Are you worried? Um, no, I'm not, I'm not worried. I think we'll be okay. Now, you've got areas up in the mountains. Their snow loads could be upwards of 70 pounds, or I've even seen 100 pounds per square foot because they get more snow, obviously. That is, their limits uh, are higher than you'd expect in Denver. That's correct. Exactly. So, you know, if we get a big storm, it's a foot or two. I'm not too concerned. We start getting three feet. I might be a little concerned about uh, we may be a little busy afterwards, but there's enough safety factor designed into buildings that it most likely will support more than that. Does it matter if a roof is flat or pitched? Yeah, it does. It also matters whether it's got parapets or walls because snow will drift against the parapet or or will drift against the wall. So now you've got more depth there and more weight at those locations. So um, with a sloped roof, it depends on the type of roofing material that you have up there. If it's a metal roof, the snow has a, a better likelihood of sliding off. I live, for instance, in a 1930s condo with a flat roof. And, you know, I take heart in the fact that it survived a lot of pretty serious storms. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's a part of me that thinks, well, the older a house is, maybe the more vulnerable it is. Uh, would you shed light, perhaps, for people who live in older structures? Well, if you've got a home that's built in the early 1900s, that lumber is much bigger and much stronger than it is today. Those buildings were built when two by fours were really two inches by four inches. A two by four today is only an inch and a half by three and a half inches. And because of the rapid growth that we're seeing with the trees, we're seeing that the lumber is getting weaker. So we have to adjust our span tables to address the weaker lumber that's out there. So on an older home, I don't think I'd be too worried about it. Nice to know. Are there things that homeowners can do 
to increase their chances that their roof will make it? Well, you just got to monitor and see how how much it uh, gets up there. And you can kind of see if you start seeing uh, cracks in the ceiling uh, where you're going to start seeing that rafter deflect. And we have, you know, we have deflection, which is designed into the member. So when you drive across a bridge, for example, and the bridge bounces when the truck goes by, that's deflection. So the member actually bows and we actually design that into the, the rafter or the beam or whatever is holding the structure up. So and it'll do that under full load. Then what happens is if it goes past that, it may not fail and collapse, but it may not come back up. Oh. Right? Which in that case, now you've got to probably re- replace those members. And we saw a lot of that in 2003 where we didn't actually have a collapse. We just had deflection past what it was. And we had to go in and replace some roofs for that. It sounds very cartoonish to me. <laughs> it's a picture, yeah. you know, yeah, this kind of permanent dip in, a, in the roof of a house. Yeah. How much do insurance companies dictate codes and the strength of a roof? I mean, they're the ones actually, who have to pay for it if it all goes to seed, you know? Actually, surprisingly so, insurance companies are not as involved as I think they might be in the code development process. The majority of the folks that are involved in code development are manufacturers, um, industry representative, code officials. We might see them every once in a while on, on roofing, but that's about it. Is there a type of roof not allowed in Colorado because of snow? Not really. The code doesn't really say that you can't use any particular type of thing as long as you meet the intent of the code. So if you can show that it'll support the loads, I mean, think about DIA and the fabric roof out there. (laughs) So it's designed to support that load as well. Steve, let's say you're designing a house from scratch in a really snowy place. I don't know. I'm thinking of like around Wolf Creek, for instance. Sure. The sky's the limit. What kind of roof do you design? What would it look like? What materials would it have? Well, you could do wood, but your rafters may be much closer together than what we would see along the front range. You might have a shorter span between beams and then more columns under the beams. So it's just a matter of of designing that into the system. You might have a steel beam versus a wood beam. What about heaters? Is there... Some benefits to roofs that can accelerate the melting themselves. Um, a lot of people put heat tape up there and, and help melt the snow. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that because you've got electric outside that can be damaged and now it can be a fire hazard. Um, but that is an option. Are there other options? Are there advances in this regard? Metal roofs are, are really good in snow country. If you go up to the mountains, you see a lot of buildings with metal roofs, right? And that's because the snow tends to slide off a lot easier. Well, Steve, I feel like I might sleep a little better after this conversation. Thank you. <laughs> Steve Thomas of Parker is Colorado Regional Manager at Shum's Coda Associates. He has more than 40 years experience with building codes. Thomas mentioned the tented roof at Denver International Airport. Back in 03, heavy snow actually tore a hole in the fabric. Now, if you're thinking about removing snow from your roof, experts say you should use extreme caution to avoid falls and injury. 
you also don't want to damage your roof by actually coming into contact with it with a shovel. Weather extremes, be it epic snowstorms or record heat and drought, are a reality of climate change. The science behind this phenomenon shouldn't be intimidating, though, says Denver 7 chief meteorologist Mike Nelson. It's why he has written the world's littlest book on climate, 10 Facts in 10 Minutes About CO2. We first spoke in December. And Mike, welcome back to Colorado Matters. Thank you, Ryan. Nice to be with you. Why don't we skip right to fact three in your book, quote, it's us, as in the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is indeed caused by people burning fossil fuels for energy. And we know this because science can show us where carbon comes from. It's almost like there are carbon fingerprints. Will you explain that? Well, everybody's probably fairly familiar with carbon dating, which is a way that uh, archaeologists can determine how old a, an artifact is or a bone, etc., by certain trace amounts of uh, radioactive carbon. We can do a very similar thing with uh, carbon that comes from old plants. In other words, things that would be fossil fuel, oil, coal, natural gas. And when that is uh, burned and released into the atmosphere, we can actually trace that flavor of carbon and know that it's not from volcanoes. It's not from other uh, natural sources. It is from digging up fossilized carbon and lighting it on fire. And so in that way, when people say, well, of course there's carbon in the atmosphere, there's always been carbon in the atmosphere. It is possible to distinguish certain kinds of carbon from others. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah. And so we know that the increase that we're seeing is not from any other source than from the uh, burning of fossil fuels. And it's been a dramatic increase in the last 200 years from 280 parts per million to now about 413 parts per million. Let me just real quickly say this, that parts per million, that doesn't sound like much of any of a problem. But if it was carbon monoxide at 413 parts per million in the air, we would be unconscious and close to death. And now carbon monoxide is poisonous. Carbon dioxide is not. But the key takeaway there is small amounts do matter. This book, Mike Nelson, is positively pamphlet-like. Why is it needed, do you think? Well, because most people are not going to spend the time to read a textbook about climate change. There are many of them out there, and they're excellent. But our goal, uh, with my two co-authors, Dr. Peter Tons and Michael Banks, uh, who is a local environmental writer, was to create something that would be a quick read but give you important facts. So when someone says, well, the climate's always changed, you can say yes, and that's exactly why we know what's happening now. You know, there, there have been some high-profile weather forecasters who reject mainstream climate science. Is that still a reality in your profession? It uh, is shrinking. Uh, what I've found is that the, the people that are skeptical of the science are get, continue to get smaller with each year, but that smaller group seems to be yelling louder. And so it still seems like there is a lot of uh, 
of uh, controversy about this. Uh, there have been a few broadcast meteorologists over the last couple of decades that have come out and stated that uh, it's not a problem, but that number has gotten very small. And in fact, uh, I'm a past chairman of the Station Scientist Committee of the American Meteorological Society, uh, our group of uh, station scientists, which is how we like to pre uh, prefer uh, to be called, uh, mm. is growing. And a lot of the younger meteorologists, not uh, just guys like me, but the ones that are in their 30s and 40s, are really getting uh, quite vocal about the science, which is excellent. In this book, The World's Littlest Book on Climate, you talk about the effects of a warming planet, coral die-off, and I think most specific to Colorado, the melting that we see at higher altitudes of both snowpack and ice. Is there a room in a nightly weathercast for that kind of information, you know, beyond the high and low temperature to talk about those bigger trends? Not every single show. I mean, I do four shows a day, five days a week. But uh, when there is something that uh, has come out, maybe at the, you know, the National Snow and Ice Center is right in Denver. And so all of the data on the ice cores, all of the data on the, uh, the amount of ice in the Arctic, and they put out reports. And so if we get the annual report coming out, uh, how much the uh, ice cap has melted in the Arctic, uh, that's an easy segue to say, you know, what we're seeing here is consistent with the warming of the planet caused by the increase in greenhouse gases. And what I normally do, Ryan, is then I will say, and you can read more if you'd like to go to my Facebook page or follow me on Twitter. I can give you a lot more information. And now with this little book, hmm. it's very easy to say, and there's a great book that won't take you a lot of time, uh, The World's Littlest Book on Climate available from Amazon. <laughs> See how fast that was? Uh, that was? That was elegant, Mike Nelson. You've done this before. Uh, in normal times, you do a lot of in-person school visits to teach kids about weather. You're doing that virtually now. And I, I feel like I really ought to play your tornado dance in which you pretend to be cool air and hot air, duking it out, and then you start to spin. Pretty soon these two air masses are really going at it. Big shoving match going on. Big thunderstorms build above the shoving match between the two air masses. The air in a thunderstorm goes up like smoke through a chimney, but it gets to the jet stream. Zoom! Whole thing starts to spin. Big and slow at first. And then much like the figure skater, smaller, faster, faster, smaller. And that rotation forms way up in the cloud and drops down to the ground to form the tornado. And that is the tornado dance. <laughs> you're sort of winded at the end of that, and you wear sunglasses when you're the cool air, and then you take those sunglasses off when you're the warm air. Uh, are you starting to focus more on climate change in school visits? Uh, yes, actually. Uh, and a lot of that has been in the last eight years since the birth of my first grandchild and uh, realizing that the changes that we are going to see uh, are obviously going to affect that generation much more than my generation. So I've added climate change into the talk. My school talk is about 45 minutes and I don't spend 45 minutes on thermodynamics and uh, you know, radiative transfer theory, but I spend time about the last five to 10 minutes talking about how carbon dioxide in the atmosphere acts like a blanket, trapping heat from escaping into space, and put it into terms that kids will understand. But the last thing I finish with is I hold up my phone and say, I'm hopeful because we now carry supercomputers 
every single day. These phones have the power a supercomputer did 30 years ago, and we carry them around in our hand every single day. Amazing inventions have happened in my lifetime. Even more amazing inventions are going to happen in your lifetime, boys and girls. And you are the people that are going to create those things in the next 20 to 25 years. You're going to be changing the world. And in this book, you compare the challenge and the opportunity of addressing climate change to past moonshots, literal and figurative, uh, the Apollo moon mission, the transcontinental radio, uh, creating the World Wide Web, for instance. Do you run into issues... Of of not getting political or trying not to be political in this environment. We, we have just about a minute, Mike. I try not to uh, stray from the science very much, the physical science, if you will, because it's pretty simple. Add heat, get warmer. We know why it's getting warmer. Uh, the political science is a tougher call mm. because that's policy and that's how we all decide, how we come together to figure out how to solve this problem. But you mentioned uh, the Apollo moon mission, the interstate highway project, uh, the transcontinental railroad in the 19th century. Yep. None of those major projects bankrupted our country and every single one of them made our nation and our world a better place. I appreciated that you compared carbon in this book to feathers in a down blanket. We're sort of adding feathers, making the blanket warmer. Uh, thanks so much, Mike Nelson, for your time. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. He is chief meteorologist at Denver 7 and has written the world's littlest book on climate, 10 Facts in 10 Minutes About CO2. We spoke in December. He was a veteran radio host and a colleague whose time at Colorado Public Radio was all too brief. Ray White succumbed to cancer earlier this week at age 69. For the last year and a half, he was a warm, welcoming voice on CPR Classical, who spoke of Beethoven and Mozart as if they were old friends. As one listener put it, Ray didn't fit the normal persona for classical hosts and was a refreshing sound in the afternoons. On CPR Classical, that is for everyone who goes, mm, I don't know if I like the modern stuff. It's not, it's a little quirky. It's a little weird. It's a, come on, that was just delicious. That was a whole lot of fun. That was called Shine You No More by one of the members of the Danish string quartet. And in fact, that was recorded. Ray's time at CPR Classical was the coda to a nearly 50-year radio career that spanned musical genres from coast to coast. But you might say it began in newspapers, well, delivering them. My first paper route money was uh, to buy a, a transistor radio, and I'd stay up with the earplug all night. The high wattage stations would come on at night, so I would listen to, in Connecticut in bed, I'd listen to Detroit, New York City, Philadelphia, uh, Woo Woo in Fort Wayne, and all these stations, and I started to get hooked on radio. And then I was sick for a year in a hospital, and I met a DJ, and he said, you know more about the radio station than people that work there. So I got invited to take a tour, got bitten by the bug, and I ended up in New York City for 24 years. With WLIR, known for its live broadcasts from area clubs, showcasing up-and-comers like Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, and Jackson Brown. As Ray would eventually do in Colorado, he hosted Afternoon Drive, and famous musicians would stop by like the frontman for Genesis, who was looking to forge a solo career. Phil Collins is with us. I'm Ray White and Rail IRFM, and that's uh, from the new album. And 
you know, it's such a difference between what's a hit single over here and what's a hit single over uh, there. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I leave it up to the people that know, you know. Ray became WLIR's music director, exposing audiences to acts like Talking Heads and the Ramones. The 2017 documentary New Wave, Dare to be Different, is about the station's legendary past, and in it, Ray explained how he helped introduce U2 to the U.S. And I got this album, Boy, with this great picture of this kid on it, and I went, okay, and he goes, this is a garage band, a band that's been together since high school from Dublin. Loved it. I Will Follow to this day is one of my very, very favorite songs. You could just sit and listen to this, this band that just was different. They were fresh, the energy, the whole production, everything. Over the years, Ray White immersed himself in different formats, rock, pop, jazz eventually landing in classical music at KDFC in San Francisco. As he had done with every other format, he dove right in, learned the music, the composers, the performers, and struck friendships with the living ones, like violinist Joshua Bell. When Bell announced he'd be giving a concert in Vail last summer, his first of the pandemic, Ray was the obvious person to interview him now that he was at CPR Classical. Along with Bell's wife and collaborator, soprano Larissa Martinez, the conversation sounded more like old friends catching up over coffee. And I guess before we even start with anything, congratulations. You got married, what, in October? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Very good. Yes, 10 months ago, and uh, right here on our property outside of New York City, where we are, where we've been uh, resting for four and a half months without much traveling. But uh, yeah, so it's been an amazing, ex- strange, and interesting experience. Yeah. yeah. How about you? How have you been spending your time? I've been, I bought some conga drums. So I've been like, well, of course, Afro Cuban jazz, and you could just go down a rabbit hole. Fun. Good for you. It's funny you got that out of me. I never thought I'd tell anybody that I have these, these set, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sitting right be- there. They are. They're right there. Yeah. You've been dying to talk about. It. I know. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I have. Ray walked among giants because he was one. He was every bit as talented, creative, and hardworking as the big name artists that he either helped discover or he interviewed through the decades. It was only natural that uh, he would become their friend so oftentimes. CPR Classical Program Director Monica Vischer. She says she'll miss the deep relationship Ray White had with Coloradans. He had this uncanny ability to know exactly what to say. So it would sound like he was sitting next to you in your car, stuck in traffic, cooking dinner with you there in the kitchen. Or he would have his arm around you to ease the anxiety of the pandemic. Now that Joshua Bell interview ended up being Ray's last. When word came Sunday of his death, tributes poured in. Hi, this is Peter Gabriel in London, and very sad to learn of the passing of Ray White. He was always a pleasure to talk to. 
a real gentleman and passionate music man, and wish there were a few more of those around. Hello, I'm Joan Jett. I'm so sad to learn of the passing of my friend, Ray White. Ray was always one of the really nice people, one of the Blackheart DJs who played my music when Tiny Blackheart Records was a long-shot dream in the trunk of our Cadillac. What have I got to say about Ray? He was a proper bad penny. He always turned up in the most unlikely places. Roger Waters here, co-founder of Pink Floyd. At some point, I would always come about out of my dressing room or go somewhere or be doing something or at a rehearsal or blah, blah, blah. And there, leaning against the wall in the corridor would be that smile, that smile that we all know so well. It's a smile that welcomes you in ways that not many smiles do. And I did quite a few interviews with Ray over the years. Um, what a lovely, lovely, lovely human being and what a good friend Ray, I don't know what else to say brother Uh, I will miss you as we all will Uh, you were a beautiful, beautiful man my hearts go out to all of you at Colorado Public Radio and all Ray's loved ones and uh, I will finish in the Irish manner, I will raise a glass. I am sorry for your loss. I love you, Ray. Bye, brother. Remembering CPR classical host Ray White, he was 69. And that's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News and KRCC.